That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Happy holiday fourth week. You are probably recovering from a raucous celebration. Maybe you're just taking it all week long. Maybe you went from the fourth straight through to the weekend and you took the rest of the week off and you're sitting in a pool chair having a margarita listening to me talk. If that's the case, I'm very jealous, but I appreciate you tuning in. Um, super excited for today's guest, Soledad O'Brien, just such an incredible journalist and has such an interesting life story and perspective on journalism today and the work she's doing, um, working both in sports with HBO Real Sports and the straight news work and reporting that she does for her own company and a variety of other outlets. A Harvard grad, the daughter of two immigrant parents who had to fight to be together uh, when there were still laws against interracial marriage where they live. Uh, she just has a really cool life story and has now reached a point where she's running her own company and making choices about what content she's most interested in and how to cover it. And that's sort of, I think, the dream for a lot of people in the creative world is to create a team that you love and want to work with all the time and then go out and seek out the things that interest you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. That's what she said. Back to the podcast in just a minute, but first, a shout out to you guys for listening. And if you are listening regularly, I want to hear from you. Even if it's your first time, I want to hear from you. I want to know what you like about the podcast, what you don't like, guests you'd like to hear from. So if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, leave me a rating and a review. It helps other people find my podcast, helps spread the word if you like it. And uh, if you subscribe, then you're going to find it easier next time you're looking for my show. And if you're on the ESPN app, you'll actually get an alert whenever I have a new episode if you subscribe. You can always tweet my thoughts at Sarah Spain on Twitter. Um, but yeah, rate me. Leave a review. Help spread the word about that's what she said. That's what she said. Happy to welcome award-winning journalist, speaker, author, philanthropist, veteran of NBC and CNN, now a reporter for Real Sports on HBO, also CEO of Starfish Media Group. Uh, the host of Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien, contributes regularly to PBS NewsHour and WebMD, also the host and executive producer of Mysteries and Scandals on NBC Universal's Oxygen Network. Uh, I could go on and on with the bio, but let's get oh, to the conversation. Stuff, right? It is, and, and there's so much more I didn't say, but everybody knows who you are, so hopefully uh, they come in informed already. Um, before we get into all the uh, interesting stuff you're doing now and, and sort of your transition into being the big boss of your own company, I kind of want to start with how you became who you are. So what were you like as a kid and what were you uh, dreaming of becoming? You know, I was one of six kids, or number five, and my parents were pretty strict. They're, they're both immigrants to the country. And I think because of that, they had a pretty tight grip on their children. Uh, my mother, every so often when she was frustrated with us, would sort of say, like, oh, these little Americans I've had. <laughs> because, of course, <laughs> we were Americans, you know, but they had, I think, more con uh, conservative and traditional views, not sort of politically conservative, but just sort of conservative about life views. And so, um, but, you know, I love growing up in a big family, and we were pretty competitive. I think it helped make me pretty competitive. Um, whether it was sports or academics or just, you know, trying to beat someone to do something. Um, having brothers and sisters is always really helpful on that front. And it was a pretty, you know, on one hand, a really great childhood, very safe, you know. And, and I think when you grow up with two parents, it, if anything, kind of boring, right? You know, which you don't realize the blessing of boring. Right. <laughs> um, and, 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 and then also just... Um, you know, really, it's sort of fun and, and easy. I was bored a lot. I knew that I was going to leave 
um, leave home for college because my parents, you know, with six kids, we didn't really get to go to camp and do that kind of stuff. They couldn't really afford it. And so I knew the minute I had a chance to get out of town, I would do that. So was it always journalism on your mind as a kid even? Never. No, you know, actually I was really? pretty mad in college. Oh, and wow. I, I realized, I started taking um, organic chemistry with my sister, Stella, who's a couple of years ahead of me, and she's a, she's an eye surgeon today. So obviously it worked out for one of us and didn't work out <laughs> for the other one. Uh, and, you know, and she really used to say to me all the time, like, why do you memorize all this stuff? Because I was actually pretty decent at just jamming stuff into my head and then regurgitating it. Right. It's like, you know, you should be able to deduce the uh-huh. formula of a line. You should be able to deduce these things. And she had a good point, which was if you're really passionate about it, you should really understand it, not just want to, um, you know, kind of spit it out and get through it. And I thought that was a really great point. So I, um, I decided not to go to medical school, and I left school, actually, and started working at a TV station, which was WBZ-TV, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. So you didn't graduate Harvard then? I did. I went back when I was okay. When I was 35, I was wow. with my first child. But what happened was I kept kind of rising through the ranks. So I became a PA and then a writer trainee and then a writer and then an associate producer and a segment producer and a line producer. Went to NBC News to become a producer for a guy who was doing science and medicine and doing stuff for Nightly News and the Today Show. And then started reporting in San Francisco and then started anchoring and so by the time I was anchoring at Weekend Today at NBC, I was 35, and there had never really been a moment to go back. But yeah. because the show was a weekend show, and my best friend was the executive producer, I could kind of work it that I could take finish up my classes. I didn't have a lot of classes to take, and uh, and go back and forth. And I was pregnant, so it was kind of an, an interesting. You know, I knew if I. If I didn't finish before I had a baby, I just wouldn't get it done because yeah. obviously a child, you know, that was just a lot of burden to put on somebody else. I wonder, was there a moment at Harvard where you decided medicine wasn't for you and that you could reassess your role within that school and work on journalism there? Why did it require leaving and going into the workplace? I, you know, because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Zero. And I actually, Harvard was so expensive and I had a lot of loans to go through school. So if you, you know, it literally felt like tick-tock, tick-tock. And if you weren't sure, it just felt to me like you're not sure. You're in your junior year. And you and the way that I knew that I had enough credits to graduate, like I'd be able to graduate, but like what did I want to graduate in? Right. And so I was. I just didn't know. And it just seemed to be a really bad idea to go forward and finish up, but without a clue of what I wanted to do. And at the same time, I mean, I think my parents would have been very disappointed if I had just sort of sat on the couch you know, and, and eating Doritos or something. But, right. but actually, I immediately got a job. I, I got an internship at a TV station. And so I was able to immediately go to work. And yeah. I think that made them, and because it was a TV station, as you well know, right, you're just working all the time. So I immediately went to working even harder than I've been working in college. And I think that made them feel very comforted, like, okay, she's doing this thing. Let's see how this works out. And then I, I knew I loved it. I knew I wanted to work in television news pretty quickly. And you mentioned that you're the fifth of six children. And if Wikipedia is to be believed, you all went to Harvard. Uh, you've got yeah. 
you've got just incredible uh, success amongst all of you. Your uh, sister Maria is a law professor. Cecilia is a GE corporate lawyer. Tony is a businessman who heads a documents company. Estella is an eye surgeon. Orestes is an anesthesiologist. And you are I you. Know, right? So, and well, first of all, talk about <laughs> proof of uh, talk about proof of immigrants coming uh, and and being the t- the cream of the crop, right? And not fulfilling stereotypes that unfortunately so some people are pushing. <laughs> interesting. I think that for us, a lot of, um, especially for my older brothers and sisters, you know, we had a big family and my parents were just very on top of us. And even my mom came from Cuba where she was a little bit obsessed with make sure you get something that no one can take from you because right. you have to leave your country with what you can fit in a bag. You, you begin to think about holding on to, uh, you know, degrees very tightly. And so I, I think if having two parents, frankly, who were educators made a huge difference for us. Yeah. And they were very strict, so that also helped. But so they were was... just educators. You know, they knew their way around the system. I remember my little brother, um, super, super bright guy, but when he was in middle school um, or elementary school, you know, they sort of tested him into the lower math group. And my mother just marched in and she's like, nope, nope. <laughs> you know, and I huh. think that there's a lot of, if your parents know how to handle the educational system, you can just leverage everything versus a parent who would say, well, okay, I don't know, you know, whatever they say. Um, she was a very good advocate for us because they both had, I mean, I'm literally the person in my family who has the fewest degrees. Everybody in my family has multiple degrees. And, yeah, so that's, that's uh, what you know, I wondered. Was there competition when you, it, it, you know, when you have a family of such success when they're all at Harvard, and so you're not you're not special just because you're the Ivy League kid, and then you leave early. Was there any part of you, other than your parents wanting you to stay busy, that felt uh, disappointed in, in being sort of lost and not knowing exactly what you wanted? No, it, I never really felt lost. I mean, I did at, as soon as I decided not to go to medical school. I felt like, oh crap, what am I going to do? <laughs> but as soon as I started working, I never felt lost. I mean, one of the things I loved about working. And as you know, right, you're just working so much that even if you had time, you know, you don't have any time to think about being lost because, you know, you've got to throw yourself in bed. So you right. wake up the next morning. I worked a 2 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift. It was crazy. But um, ooh, there was never competition. It was, I mean, I used to joke that, um, you know, my brothers and sisters all wanted to put, get me to put them on TV in some capacity. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, friendly, my little brother went to undergrad to Yale. And so you know, we all used to joke that Yale was the safety school, blah, 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 ha, ha. But, but no, I mean, we really, there was no competition. I think everyone in my family and my parents really set this example. It was very much about, you know, you should go to a place and do the things that you want to do. You have to do this for the rest of your life. Yeah. So make sure that you enjoy it and it's your decision. That at the same time, you're not going to live rent-free. <laughs> We're certainly not going to, like, run around and drive you places. No, you may not borrow the car. And, <laughs> you know, like, you have to be self-sufficient. But, but we certainly, you know, are going to let you kind of find your way. Yeah, that's great. So what they were was not your... toddlers. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it, that's for sure. But they also don't seem, for strict parents, they don't seem like they um, fell into some of the typical stereotypes, which are you have to be a this, a this, or a this. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? not at all. They, they expected they a lot, but within like, the confines of what when, you wanted. Right. When I was working as a producer at NBC News, my mother used to call the office to find, because I was living with my, in my parents' apartment, um, for about six months before I was able to find an apartment in New York City. And my mother used to call the office every day to find out what I wanted to eat for dinner. Oh, that's really <laughs> funny. Please that's... stop calling me. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> this is embarrassing. Like, I'm at work, Mom. I wish someone would call me. <laughs> yeah, she sent you a lunch brown lunch bag with a note that said I love oh, you in it for lunch. She would have. She thought that. <laughs> she definitely would have. 
So what would you consider your big break in the in the world of television? Not so much the first meaningful job, but the big the big one. You know, I, I really think that it's a series of a lot of little breaks, truly. Like, for me, I was working in local news when the guy who was the head of science and medicine at NBC News was looking for, a, a, like, an associate producer slash, slash researcher. And he called me and sort of said, hey, would you like this job? And I'm like, yes, I accept. And then he's sort of backing out. Like, oh, my gosh, well, you know, I just love theater. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it was a really good opportunity to become in the shunt of network news when I got to NBC there are a handful of executives who kept saying to me, like, well, what do you want to do? You know, do you think you'd ever want to be a reporter? And so I was able to stay there for a couple of years and then go out to San Francisco with really no reporting experience. I mean, I'd been a, by then a network producer, but no reporting experience. And I got to, you know, report at the, I think it's in like the number five or number six market in the country. That's insane. That would just not happen. Um, then MSNBC started in 1996. So I was able to anchor for the first time. Get a national platform. Really, wow. that, that was does not really happen. And I think you know, at every turn, what I tried to do was to be a, a good little doobie and try to really just you know get out there and do the best that I could. I remember in local news at W uh, at KRON TV in San Francisco, I, I I wasn't very good. I wasn't the best certainly, but every time there was an overnight fire, you know, they'd call me up and send me, and it was great. And, and I used to tell people, young reporters, this all the time. I just wasn't a pain in the ass. I yeah, literally was it's just a huge part of it. it. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is you, you go and you cover 40. And by the 35th, you're pretty good at it. <laughs> and by the 40th, you're pretty great at it. And so by just not being jerk, people would give you opportunities because you were the path of least resistance. There are other people who were better, but they were just difficult. And yeah. so I really think that just by not being difficult, people would kind of say, like, well, she could do it. <laughs> like, yeah. I a chance. Don't underestimate how much people need to want to work with you. That's a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, so you get up to super high ranks at CNN and, and you're you know recognized and known and you leave. And those are the kind of jobs nobody yeah. leaves. So what inspired you yeah. to take that leap? You know what's so funny? I, um, when I had been at NBC News and I went to CNN, it was even more dramatic because I remember people saying to me, like, who leaves the Today Show platform? And I was just like, well, first of all, I'm on weekend today. And, you know, and to go from doing three hours of television a week to doing 15 or 20 a week was amazing. I mean, it was like college. It was amazing just to, you know, just to really learn about international news and breaking news and all those skills that I didn't really have because I was anchoring for NBC and the Today Show, but but on the weekend Today Show. So realistically, you know, you're not really on the Today Show platform really, really. So... So I think there was a, I really learned pretty quickly just to kind of go by my gut, like, no, this is a pretty good opportunity. At CNN, when they had a new president came in, Jeff Zucker, who's the president now, came in, and he made it really clear he, he was going to replace me. He wanted somebody who was younger, a little blonder than me. He wanted mm-hmm. to go back to a traditional format, boy, girl, guy was older, woman was younger. Uh-huh. And, um, and he didn't see a place for me as an anchor. He asked me to stay on as a fill-in anchor, and I felt that I had a pretty good reputation and and a pretty good ability to do, you know, I knew what I wanted to do, and I didn't think that being a fill-in was going to really be the best move for me, because the challenge in being a fill-in, of course, which we all do when we start out in the business, is you don't really have your team, so it's hard to have quality control of your material. You know, if you're lucky, the people are great. You know, you're going to Monday, Tuesday, you're going to fill in here. And then Wednesday, you're off. But Thursday, you're going to come back with the overnight shift. And then Friday, they need you late. You know, so 
it's all fine, but when you have your team, you can really create fantastic content because everybody sort of is working together as a real team. When you're a fill-in, you do your best not to mess it up till the person comes back. Yeah. And sure, I could have done that. It just didn't seem very inspiring. And it didn't seem like something I had to do. I mean, I, I felt like I had a really good reputation for being a really good journalist and that I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could go and create sort of a, 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 a business where I don't have to work for just one person. Could I go and do a series of, you know, of, of deals with people? Everybody knowing what I'm doing, you know, full transparency, I think is really, really critical. You don't want anybody to be surprised. And could I, in fact, create a production company where we could create content that I'm not in? You know, that would be amazing because I'm now 51 and I'm not going to be on camera for the rest of my life. And, you know, what if I just want to do stories that I don't want to be in them? So we started really thinking about that, and it seemed very doable. And then pretty quickly, I started you know, working pretty much right away for uh, Real Sports, and I think that gave me a sense that this was very doable. Uh, and then we kept you know, growing the, the business and growing the company. And what I loved about Real Sports was, again, the quality was so high that it didn't feel like, hey, you know, you're just going to do a, a gig for whatever. You're, you're working with some of the best journalists who really you know, win all these awards. I felt like I was still doing the work that I was doing just around a prism of, of sports, but really the same kind of you know, human stories of struggle and opportunity and lack of it. Yeah, I mean, I think what you said about having ownership and working with a team is super important. But then it's interesting that you would move on to something that allows you or requires you to work with many different teams. Yeah, it's interesting, right? But it's, it's, I think what ended up happening is that the team that you create is your team. And As you bring them with you everywhere. Somebody else's job, right? right like okay. when you're filling in, it's somebody else's job. Literally, don't screw it up. Try not to make the ratings go down too much. In fact, try not to make the ratings go up too much. Right? <laughs> that also upsets the apple cart. Like just get in there, read off the prompter, and do a perfectly fine, solid job. When you're creating your own stories, it's your team. Now, it might be your team for the next four weeks that you're working, but from every step of conception into actually execution to delivering it, they're your team. You're not just popping in for a couple of days, you know, to, to help somebody out because they're on vacation. So it's a little bit different. Right. Absolutely. Well, and if you bring that team with you to all the work you're doing. Um, so Starfish Media is multi-platform, uh, dedicated to telling empowering and authentic stories that elevate today's most important social issues. And I know you talk a lot about um, your own background of multicultural uh, background of your parents uh, being immigrants and from um, from uh, other countries, informing your view of the stories that we tell and who tells them. I think I heard you say on a different podcast um, that if everything is framed from the hunter's perspective, uh, when hmm. do we hear from the lion? Um, so well, you know, it's so funny because if you think about it, and I think I stole that quote from somebody, and I can't remember who. I think it's very old, but you, when someone said that to me, I remember thinking, right, like. Never expect that the hunter is going to give the lion's point of view, ever, right. ever. Right. But don't be shocked when he does not. And in fact, don't be shocked when he not only doesn't give his point of view, but rewrites a point of view that only serves his purpose. And you can see that all the time. So it became, for me, just an opportunity to say, well, you know, what is the other point of view? What are the other stories to tell? And how do they clash or fit in with another narrative? I mean, I think that that's you know, been very interesting. And I think we're seeing more of that actually today. Uh, than we were even seeing as I started doing documentaries back in 2008. 
Right. Well, we we are starting, I think, more and more to recognize the necessity of having a diversity of voices that we can't default to the white, straight male point of view as the norm and then uh, uh, believe that everything else is some sort of specialty that we that we only visit every once in a while. But that's tough to do in some places still. Um, you have to have a, a, a courageous voice. You have to demand coverage. You have to speak up as oftentimes a minority in the room. But you have to do it without losing your audience or annoying your coworkers. You know, you have to ask yeah, for and demand the things. I mean, nice. Yeah, how do you do that? <laughs> it gets a little easier. I think when I was at CNN and we were doing our first Black in America documentary series, I'll, I'll give you an example. We were doing the series and uh, the second year, and um, it was going to be an hour. So we probably were going to profile maybe seven people. And they had picked, we picked through the stories, and one story that they wanted to go with was this woman who was white who was running a program for kids whose parents were incarcerated. And she was wonderful, and she was terrific. And I'm like, but we should not do her. Like, here's what we're saying. We're saying we can't even find seven black people to feature one time a year. Yeah. No, and she's wonderful, and we should definitely do a story on her, and we should put her on somewhere else at another time, around another topic. But this is called Black in America. Like, you know, and, and, and it's not very popular. People are, they hate that because they've already booked her and she's willing and it's going to be messy to get out of it. And I just, I don't know, at some point you get older and you just, I'm not so worried about having everybody love you. Right. And I think especially if you can manage to keep your work high quality, you know, no one can sort of say, maybe that was my own paranoia all the time. You know, no one could ever say, well, her work is crappy. You know, so the work was high quality and then you'd say, and if you could keep it high quality and you could win either awards or ratings or whatever, then you would get a lot more say. But, you know, it was amazing to have to fight over stuff like that. And remember, part of my, my reason for doing it was all that stuff was going to come back on me, all those documentaries. I mean, people thought, like, I shot them, edited them. <laughs> the <laughs> Pick the, picked the stories, know, yeah. the promos. You know, so I, I, I was going to be the one who was going to feel this backlash, and I thought it was fair backlash. I thought, like, really, we can't find seven people? Right, <laughs> right. Well, it's, so you, you end up becoming that voice that is a bit of a pain. But, you know, as time goes on, I think I've got better at maybe the way I broach it. So you don't come in like a, you know, like a, a steam shovel or just, right. you know, a bursting through everybody like, oh, this is stupid. You come in and you say, hey, listen, uh, this is what I'm thinking. And then you also come in simultaneously with, so here is people who I've spoken to who I think would be terrific replacements. Yeah. And I think that second piece of it has really helped. Give them a solution to too. Don't just complain. Yeah. Exactly. And then yeah. as soon as you do that, everybody stops freaking out because they're like, oh, okay, she really wants to find a solution and she's going to help be part of the solution. It's funny that you mentioned as you get older, you just care less if people like you because I talk about that a lot on the pod. I mentioned this like pivot I made from uh, not caring as much whether a bunch of sports bros wanted to have a beer with me and caring a bit more about using my, my voice for things that I cared about, even if it pushed some of them away. I think I hear that a lot from women especially, and women especially in male-dominated fields, that you sort of have to start out being pretty easy to work with and easygoing and everybody likes you. And then once you've got your, your bit of agency, you want to make a difference a bit more rather than just not rocking the boat. Yeah, I think what you find is the good people are like, okay, cool. Yeah, we like you better like that. We reward that because that's more interesting. Exactly. And that's, yeah. you know, that's by the way, who they say, listen, you know, my daughter's 14 and is thinking about such a thing. Yeah. Yep. You seem to really kind of 
kind of have come into yourself. I think it was Jane Pauley who used to talk about it as like the third stage of life where, you know, early on you're just trying to get in the door. And in the middle, you're sort of trying to be this thing so everybody's comfortable with you. You know, my favorite thing is always being in the room making people feel comfortable. Like, oh, yeah, do we want her on the team? Or I'm comfortable with her. And then you get to the point where you're like, yeah, you know, here's what I'm going to need. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the most fun things about running your own company is when you work with people that you don't like or that it's a bad experience, you can just say, you know, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We should not work together again. I mean, I just don't like <laughs> negative experiences. And I have a, this woman we were interviewing to be a director for a project, and she said the other day, and it made me love her, she said, you know, I just want you to know I don't work with people who are jerks. She said, you know, some people will. They'll say, well, you know, this person's a, he's such a jerk, but, but you know, they're a genius. And she's like, I don't even care if they're a genius. I just won't do it. I will not yeah. do it anymore. I won't. And I was just like, more power to you, sister. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm feeling that. I, you don't, I don't need you to be, you know, a jerkish uh, genius. You know, everybody can just work on a team and be fun to work with. You spend so much of your time at work. It should be enjoyable most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things that happens sometimes when we try to push people a little bit out of their comfort zone, or we try to t- we try to be more understanding of of diversity of of thought, diversity of, of person, is that we attack mistakes more obviously now as we're trying to educate, which can be good in that we are talking about things that have become accepted that are problematic. But at the same time, I think it might occasionally prevent people from growing because they feel defensive and then they they bring up the PC stuff. And a a very tiny example is, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's hosting the Oscars. They have that random tour group that walks through. Um, There's an Asian woman that he asks her name and she says, Eulery you know, rhymes with jewelry. He kind of laughs about it for a bit, then asks her companion his name, and he says, Patrick. And Kimmel says, now that's a name. And it's unnecessary to attack an unfamiliar name as not a name because it's not the culture that you're associated with. But also the furor that came at him, I think, um, makes people then frustrated with the other side because it doesn't feel like Jimmy Kimmel intended to be disrespectful or ignorant. So we're finding this, I think, problem with... Um, educating and spreading the good word about what needs to be changed and what, what we can help with. Um, but we're doing it so aggressively and angrily sometimes that it's just creating yeah. division. Yeah, no, I think that's really true, right? I mean, you don't give people the opportunity to learn and then they back away. I mean, the funny thing is probably for someone like Jimmy Kimmel, that is a strange name. And Patrick is a name. Like, he's like, yep, got it. That one. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and if there's a way to show somebody like, you know, in our country, the name Jimmy would mean such and such, like, ha, 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 right? You get it? Like, yeah. your name, actually, from another point of view, <laughs> is a terrible name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes you have to explain that to people. And, and it, you know, it's. I remember when I was at CNN, my boss, um, I was pregnant with twins, and my boss said to me, you know, I want you to know that you do not have to worry, uh, you know, about coming back because, uh, you know, often you'll have a baby, you don't know how you're going to feel. And I remember thinking, like, no one is having this conversation with my husband, who's also having twins, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yes. Like, I, because what I'm sure he was saying, here I am being very generous of spirit. And I'm hearing, <laughs> no, we do not believe that you really are committed to this job. And so I said to him, like, so let me tell you, I, I, I can tell you how I'm going to feel. I'm going to feel poor because I will have four children on the <laughs> I will be on the first possible day my doctor allows it. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Joke. But, yeah. you know, I, I, you understand how 
his perspective was, I'm just being incredibly generous and trying to tell her, you know, it's okay. And I'm hearing something different. Yeah. You know, partly because he certainly wouldn't have said it. To, I'm sure he has never said that to any man on his team ever. So did you take the opportunity to tell him that? I did. I did. I, I, I laughed and I just said, I, I will be here. Yeah. And I think he sort of got it. But, you know, I, I do find that humor helps people a lot because it For just sure. sort of them out of their, their space. I mean, it, it did. It came from a very good place, but it also, you know, it, it scared the crap out of me because I'm like, so if you don't think I'm committed to being here, and by the way, I'm about to leave for six weeks or something, like, that's really bad for my career. You know, yeah. I can't have that. I can't have you thinking that. Well, that I think you're insane. right. The, the, that actually communicating, having a sense of humor, saying, giving people the benefit of the doubt and a little bit of leniency to say this comes from a good place, whether or not I'm reading it that way or whether or not it's the exact right way to do it is super important. We do that less and less. And, and yeah, well, you, know, you know, you can get into so much detail do. about how social media yeah. has affected us, right? You know, and, and, yeah. and the studies yeah. say if you're talking to someone person to person, you physiologically react to what their face does when you do or say things. That doesn't happen on the internet. That's why we can be cruel and awful and whatever. But I don't think people even are necessarily trying to connect anymore the same way or, or trying to understand the other side. It's just this is my side. You are monoliths. If you believe something I don't, then everything about you is bad. How do we even yeah. attempt to begin to fix that? Yeah, well, you know, one thing I found that when something actually wasn't coming from a good place, you know, I would sort of say to people, I, I think you have to make a moment of it. And it really was helpful to have uh, mentors in my office who would say, you know, walking up to someone and saying, hey, can we talk for a minute? So I noticed that every single time there's an assignment for such and such, you don't pick me. And at first, I just thought it was happenstance, and now it's happened four times. And now, you know, so I'm just, I wanted to just meet and say, is there something that I have done that I could fix that would change this? And I actually found, again, you know, where the person probably was not coming from a good place. It wasn't just an oversight or a joke. You had to actually walk through. Sometimes they would say, yeah, I don't think you're the appropriate person. I mean, I'd have people say to me, I don't think moms should go on dangerous stories. Mm. I was like, well, you know, unfortunately, that that is not your decision to make. So, but it allowed you to, in a respectful way, clear the air. And I think you're right. Social media has sort of killed that because, you know, even in social media, when you apologize to someone or you say, "Okay, let me explain to you what I was thinking," you know, you are able to back people down. I mean, I really do try to have respectful conversations on social media. Um, But I I think you're right. I think everyone's trying to one up each other with the kind of nasty mic drop moment right. that it gets a little tiring. So here at ESPN, uh, occasionally we get accused of being too liberal or too left. Um, and in the same breath, often those complaining people um, mention that the people that are the worst uh, uh, offenders and that should be fired are, are almost always women and people of color. And it's as if they view the very hiring of those people and including of those people in the conversations as left or liberal. Um, How have you, as someone who is constantly pushing for diversity of voice, dealt with um, people who presume to know what you have to say or what your perspective will be based on the idea that you might look different than the average person that they're getting their news from? Yeah, you know, I think you have to try to find areas of commonality. You know, I just, when I would go and cover stories where... Uh, um, you know, anywhere in the deep south, for example, uh, where people would sort of assume you're with the media, you're this, you're that. I really 
you know, I just think finding conversations around, I mean, children really helps with that because everybody likes their kids and wants to talk mm-hmm. about their kids and show a picture of their kids and has some frustration with their kids. Um, you know, I, I do. I, I think you can't really fight it. All you can say is like, yeah, you know, blah, 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 blah. I remember during 9-11, there was a woman whose husband had been killed. He was a Port Authority police officer. And, um, and we were talking, and she had five kids, and literally she had just lost her husband. And at one point, she points to me this little bite mark because she had a new baby. And babies, when you put them over your shoulder, when they're new, they tend to, like, try to jab you with their teeth. So you end up in your shoulder blade having these little bite marks from this little yeah. monster who's biting you. And I, and I took down my shirt, and I said, oh, my God, look, me too, because my kid is 18 months old and teething. And I just remember, like, from that moment on, it was just like, oh, you're a mom and I'm a mom. And we're just in different places right now. But we're both interested in telling this story and trying to get it, you know, really, really right. So I often tell people, so this is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Am I getting it right? You know, but, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to do my job. She's trying to do what she needs to do, you know. And I think if you just bring people back down to this, this commonality, it really shouldn't matter. If someone's conservative, if they're liberal, if they're independent, if they're a libertarian, if they're whatever. I mean, really, at the end of the day, most of the time, the stories that you're working on, you want to hear kind of different perspectives woven together. That's what makes it smarter. That's when you get something out of it. Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of storytelling, journalism, curiosity in general is a desire to hear the other side. And sometimes people say, why do you even engage with people on Twitter? And I think my stories get better if I know what the other side is, because then I can either rebuke it in the story so that they have to read and understand my point of view before they can complain about it, because the, you know, the story's in, in the bag. And, and, uh, and now I've got to go back and say, well, this is how I feel about X and Y. If I know what they're going to say, I can discuss it within the, within the confines of the story before they even get to say it. Um, so I think it's super useful to hear the other side, but there's also these large, you know, pop culture moments where the discussion becomes, do we need to give a platform and a spotlight to everybody? Um, and the, the recent example was Megyn Kelly having Alex, Alex Jones on. And a lot of people said, we don't, he's allowed to have his opinions, but we don't need to give a spotlight to further introduce those opinions to people. If it's stuff like, you know, the Sandy Hook massacre was, was staged and the, you could the, have done the parents, it you know, fine piece on, you can do a perfectly fine piece on X Jones. He doesn't need to be profiled, right? Part of the issue and the changes they made in the days leading up to the airing, right, was that they added a dad from Newtown. Right. Because the, what people really took exception was, like, it's the difference between saying, here's a mic, come stand up here and just do your thing, versus let's do a story on a person who is doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So I, I actually, it's very hard for me to criticize people who want to do a story on an issue or even a, you know, something that's happening in culture. I don't mind that at all. I do think you just have to be cognizant of like, well, how are we telling that story? And who, you know, who's, whose point of view gets told? You have someone who said a lot of despicable things. And at the time that they were promoting it, you know, there was no position for somebody who, 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 who was a parent to have a voice in that at all. That was added a little bit later. So I never minded the idea that you're interviewing Alex Jones. I mind the idea that the story is a profile of a person who's done really despicable things and a 16-minute profile, right, which is a lot of platform for someone who we would all say is kind of a despicable person. It's not a story on him. It's not a story on the issues. You know, it's a a platform. I think the same thing about, you know, the the white supremacist, um, what's his face, Richard Spencer is a similar thing. Yeah, you know, you can Milo. do a really interesting story about the rise of white supremacy in America, and he can be in it, 
it's just this idea of like handing him a mic and a platform. I think that's really unwise. Yeah. You, you do a lot of uh, news and you also do sports. What's the biggest difference for you? And is there any difference in the way that you attack or prep for something for real sports versus something that's more um, either political or, or straight newsy? Yeah, there's not a ton of difference. I, I do think the only difference is, to me, sports is such a metaphor for all these things that we value in society, like, um, you know, stick to and working through something and coming back when when you're injured and, and not giving up and, you know, sort of all these things that I just think are amazing. I always think of sports, it's, you know, really when my kids got old enough, I just wanted them to play sports, even if they weren't good, because I wanted them to feel those things of you're not good, but you get better. You're not good, but you don't give up. You're not good, but you're still you're still polite and shake somebody's hand at the end of the game when you've lost. Like all those things are are really, to me, what's the most important stuff about sports. Not, you know, what was the score? You know, is your right. kid going to get a scholarship, which would all be great. It's just not the most important thing to me. So I, I think the difference is I always kind of look into analyzing somebody's character more when you're talking about somebody who is you're looking at through the prism of sports. You know, what did sports teach them and what did sports fail to teach them sometimes <laughs> is a lot of what we, we look at and, and talk about versus I don't think that I've ever – done that as much with a politician i think it's much more tactical you know what do you think what do you believe da, 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 what's going to happen next yeah but that would be the only the only difference and probably when you are assessing a politician over years or maybe at the end of their political career then i do think you go back to you know what did politics teach you what did you learn about you know allegedly serving people um so it's, in some ways they're very similar yeah, absolutely. And especially if you are someone who's interested in the stories of sports instead of just the box score or the breaking down the play call. Um, I find in, in sports, what I love about it is that I do dive in deep on very serious stuff, but it's also can be very lighthearted and funny and silly and, and, and everything else. Um, and it doesn't, there are stories that stick with me and that I take along with me long after I've written them or interviewed someone. Um, but I don't think it's as hard to tackle sometimes as other other news stories and some of the real tragedies in the world. Um, do you find ever that you have trouble letting go of a person you cover or a story you cover? Um, and, oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, because yeah. that would be really hard yeah. for me. I have, a, I have an empathy issue where I barely can watch the news because it makes me so upset. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, I, we be... started, when I started doing documentaries after Hurricane Katrina, actually, we started a oh, foundation yeah. to send girls to college, and that's what was happening. I was like, oh, this is the girl I can send to college. And so we've graduated 17 girls. But really, yeah. Wow, that's there. great. What should, I do? what should I do? Can't help everybody, and I don't think it's always, you know, the best use of resources to try to help everybody. But, no, it, it just made me feel like I was accomplishing something else as opposed to just walking away. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 if it does inspire you to make a change because of that, uh, that's a good thing, I guess. I, I think certain people are suited to things, too. Um, there are people who are suited to be doctors. I am not someone who could cut something open. So, uh, you know, you are suited to do the news and be able to have it help help people and also continue to move on and cover it, even if it's tough. Um, I, I'm curious when, when you talk about your your job as as president and, and of this new starfish media how do you approach what you do want to tackle you get a lot more freedom now obviously cool. you've got a couple other gigs you're, you're tackling and having to juggle at the same time but how do you know when something is the right gig for you or, or a story is something that you care enough about to do yeah you know i think it's back to basic journalism which is it just makes you excited right if someone just calls up and says hey 
I got an email today, hey, there's a story in Cuba. And I'm like, yep, I'm in. <laughs> so part of it is just that. And, and, and also, you know, do I think we can do a good job? Is this something that's really my area of expertise? Because where I began to really, I mean, the first year, I just didn't feel like I was CEO, even though I was CEO. I just felt like I don't even know really what I'm doing. But then as we kept going and we kept growing our clientele and we kept figuring it out more, you know, I would tell people, listen, you know, here's what we do. Here's what we can deliver for you. And if this is not okay, like you should walk away and I will find you someone else. I will get someone. If you think this is too expensive, not a problem. If you think you want it this way and I disagree, I will help you get somebody who can do this for you. But, yeah. you know, here's why you hire me. <laughs> and, and I think that when, when that turning point happened, I began to really understand my value and, and not feel badly about it or, or worried about it. Just feel like, you know, this is my value. This is why you should hire me. And if this is not what you're going to do, you should not hire me. And it helped us really be more streamlined in our business decisions because I could say, yep, this is what we can do. This is what we can deliver. This is why you want us and nobody else. Or this is really not what we do. You should go someplace else. You're a great example of someone who's achieved a ton of power and success uh, and an incredibly powerful voice in this industry. Um, so you're certainly not a victim, but you are uniquely able to speak to how difficult it might be for a woman in a male-dominated industry or a minority or a, a person of color. Um, I'm always trying to toe that line of if you are empowered and successful, people don't necessarily want to hear how bad you have it. But if you have gotten to that point, you know that there are others struggling to get there and you want to be a voice for them. How do you decide when to speak up and out about things like that and when to just do the work? Because I know that there are plenty of women in my industry that choose to just do the work. And then there are those of us that do the work, but also want to engage in conversations about having more women doing play-by-play or color commentary, or having more analysts instead of just hosts, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm built to only do the work. I think yeah, I have either. to both do the work <laughs> and then say, so, you know. Um, but, but I do believe the do-your-work part is the, is the, is the more important part. Um, you know, and sometimes when I'm talking to young women, I'll just say to them, look at look at the data points. I mean, I, here I don't I don't need to talk about victimization. Here's here's the data. This is this is the number of women right there. <laughs> you know, so I'm not making it up. Here's what it is. But at the same time, you have to come up with a strategy of how you want to do it, and understand fully that if you're constantly complaining about it, you won't get to where you want to go. I mean, one of the challenges in, you know, because it's a question I'm asked a lot by young women. You know. So how difficult was it to be in a minority? I'm like, listen, the data points are there. There's not that many. I mean, look at prime time on CNN, for example, or even, you know, the entire line. That said, uh, you know, complaining about that is not the strategy for winning. You actually have to find mentors and sponsors. People are going to help you get better. You need opportunities. So you need to go around the back end to kind of get people to send you to Haiti for the earthquake uh, to Thailand for the tsunami. And then you need someone who's going to give you, you know, unvarnished feedback. Like, that's what's really going to make you successful. You can never, you know, never really force someone into giving you a spot. They'll just resent you forever. What you want is great opportunity and feedback so you can grow. Yeah. So I, I've really tried to do that for people, to, you know, both ask for opportunity for myself, ask it for, for other people. And I just, I don't think I can just put my head down and do the work one thing I did do when I had my kids at CNN, I remember when I landed actually covering the tsunami, one of my producers said, 
I was brand new there, pretty much. And uh, he said, listen, I know they think you're a star here or something, but you should know if you can't hack it, I'm going to put you on a plane home. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, my God, I had never been so disrespectfully spoken to in my life. Right, right. And that includes, like, people screaming at me <laughs> as a reporter. I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, what a weird thing to say to somebody. Right. And we ended up actually doing a great job in, 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 in Thailand. I remember calling my husband crying. I was like, I can't believe this person said this to me. He's like, you know, then what you do is knock it out of the park. Yeah, prove him wrong. Know, when you're put in this position, bitching about it won't help. Knock it out of the park. That's yeah. going to show people. And so as a working mother, I did often have this idea of I will outwork everybody. No one will ever say, well, you know, <laughs> so, you know we sent her off to do such and such, but she had to come home because she missed her kids. Or, yeah. oh, she's a mom. So, you know, we tried to get her to do this, but she had to go to the nursery school picnic. You know, and, <laughs> uh, and, and we were able to just kind of work it out. But yeah, it was definitely, um, I, you know, that was very intentional because I knew that that was sort of setting the tone for other women with children that yeah. if I could go anywhere and cover any story, then oh, anybody could. All right. I know I have to let you go soon. So a couple really quick hits, uh, some fun stuff. We're both super into horses, and I wonder how that started for you. I started horseback riding when I was 13 in Long Island. My parents couldn't pay for my lessons, so I started mucking stalls to pay for it. Uh-huh. And I just loved it. I wasn't very good, and I still am, like, older and not great. Um, but I really, really enjoy it. And um, I just, you know, the horse is one thing for me, and I'm kind of a tightly, tightly wound type A person. Yeah. I find that you, you can't multitask on a horse. So yeah. it's, very, it's very relaxing because you actually have to sit there and do your drills and just do your work and focus and not think about these 17 things that I'm usually kind of focused on. <laughs> yeah, and the relationship between humans and horses is really fascinating, and you feel it when, when you're around them. Um, we're all, you're also really into um, uh, hearing charities and campaigns. And I think we first connected on Twitter because of my Hear the Cheers campaign that I started a couple of yeah. years ago helping kids get hearing aids. And you reached out because you have a personal connection to that cause as well, right? Yeah, my son is, uh, is deaf. He wears two hearing aids. So he's got about 5% of his hearing left. And we're considering a cochlear implant for him when he fully loses his hearing. All that stuff is very... Um, you know, the science is so good now, but, but also right. scary if you're the mom. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, it really, I remember the first time he got a hearing aid. And I said, hey, Jackson. And he looked up and he was just like, <laughs> you could hear me. It was yeah. amazing. I mean, it was just the most amazing thing. You could just, you know, have someone's voice in your head. You know, he usually has like a white noise. And so it's been an interesting little journey. He's a great kid and he's doing really, really well. You know, but sometimes getting everybody else on board with what he needs and the support he needs and, and frankly, honestly, ad- getting him to advocate for himself. You know, I'm like, yeah. listen, at the end of the day, nobody cares if you can hear or not. You have to say, I can't hear. You have yeah. to move your seat. You have to raise your hand. Have you ever done a story on the complicated reasons why hearing aids are often not covered by insurance? It seems like such a no-brainer. No, I haven't. That's a great idea. Yeah, because every time I try to explain that to people, they, they can't believe it. I'm like, I don't know either. It's so It's so odd. Um, that you could fall and break your arm and get something, but you could be born with this, and it would it would just not be covered. It's it's really hmm, that's unbelievable. That's so interesting. I, I you know it's so funny. I had no idea, and I didn't even know the complicated reasons. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Well, story and, and and it would even work with um, yeah, it would even work with HBO Sports because there are some pretty high profile athletes that have that have yep. talked about it. So, um, all right, biggest failure of your life. Oh gosh, so many. So the thing I really regret the most, which is going to sound very pathetic is in sixth grade, 
I really, really, really <laughs> wanted to try out for the musical. And I never did. And I tell this to my daughters, who of course, all rolled their eyes now that they're 15 and 16. But I'm like, you know, I really regret that. I have a decent singing voice. I could have definitely done it. And I just <laughs> never did. And I'm like, you know, don't, don't, don't wait for stuff, you know, and, and be just so nervous that you end up not accomplishing what you think you could do. Get out there. And if you, know, if you screw it up and it's embarrassing and terrible, so be it. It, it beats looking back what is it, 40 years later, I'm still being pumped about not, you know. Isn't that funny, though, the things that stick with you? Yeah. Isn't that sad? It's sad. It's pathetic. Yeah, I did a show with this guy about regret, and I was like, I still regret that I couldn't hit my marks for high school state championship triple jump competition, and I didn't make the finals because of the marks. I mean, it's just the silliest things that that stick with you. Uh, Who's the worst interview subject you've ever had? Gosh, uh, you know who's really, really terrible, and I like him a lot, but Robert De Niro is just notoriously terrible. He doesn't speak. He just doesn't get into it. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't really give you, he doesn't meet you halfway. No, and it's so interesting because he'll look at you. One day, I I have interviewed him a bunch of times, and uh, he was watching, apparently, our Weekend Today show. And he said to me, we were doing a segment on summer books, so they brought in a bunch of sand to the plaza. And he looks at me, and he just says, oh, How'd you get the sand off the plaza? <laughs> so I was like, that's just like that. So, uh, in those kinds of TV interviews that are about a movie yeah. or about you know some event, you need the person to be very loquacious. Like, yeah, oh, he doesn't so like the shell. He talk and talk and cheat. Instead, it's like one word answers. Yeah. How, did, you, did you tell me? Did you enjoy filming that scene? That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, what did you enjoy about it? Yeah. It was good. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Help me. Help me. Yeah. Um, how about your favorite interview subject? Oh, gosh. There's so many. You know, truly, I really loved a lot of the people that we interviewed during Hurricane Katrina because in many cases they were people who were really undereducated or uneducated, and they were so incredibly compelling and articulate about loss and fear and what was happening in the country. You know, they were able to kind of capture something in a way that I think better read, better educated people were having a hard time putting together, but because it was their lives, really what they were saying was just amazing and and beautiful uh, about kind of what it's like to be in America at a time when people don't care if you survive or don't survive enough to send help. I mean, it's amazing. So sometimes I love stuff like that or just interviews that, you know, where you're surprised, you think it's going to be like fine and it ends up being amazing. I interviewed Jim Carrey once. Oh, my God, he was so funny. He used to get up during the interview and go talk to people. <laughs> during a live interview, he'd literally yeah. get up and walk in and go talk to me. And you're like, okay. He's like the opposite of De Niro. You're like, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, all right, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing everybody does. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects it. Number one, the natural talent you wish you were gifted with. I wish I was a better horseback rider. I wish I didn't have fear going over jumps. Anything yeah. over two feet, I'm like panicked. Panicked. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's scary, but yeah. Just got to get that courage up. See what happens. Make it three. Make it four. <laughs> uh, number two, yeah. what's your desert island album? You can only have one. Anything with Luther Vandross. The house is not really? a home. Just okay. a really nice, chill R&B. Yeah, on a desert island. I assume you're stuck there. You're not going home anytime soon. You don't want to. Right. Keep it chill. Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Anyone for a day? 
Alive or dead, yeah. Alive or dead. Definitely not dead. Um, well, they wouldn't be dead if you switched lives with them. I but think they... it would be really fun to be a pop star, just for a day. Oh, like, yeah. Actually, I think it would be terrible. But I think for a day, to be like a Miley Cyrus or to be <laughs> like a someone crazy, like Azalea Banks is kind of insane. Yeah, she is really a little off. Yeah, and right, have the crowd screaming. I will say I love, I love a crowd of millions screaming at me. Yeah, get out, yeah. and if you have a talent and you can really see, see, that's my, yeah. my, my sixth grade thing. You sit up there and you could sing, you could Nicki Minaj. Yeah. I think music too is people. Music is one of the coolest talents because if you're a great writer or everything else, yeah, you'll realize that you're good at it and it'll come very natural to you. But I think music more than anything, you feel like you know what you were put here to do. If you really have oh, an unbelievable voice or a piano prodigy, you just know, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm this is what I'm meant to do because yep. it's just it's it's yep. pretty awesome. Uh, four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, you know, I think, uh, reporting some stories where you're just not sure, especially in Haiti, um, partly because I didn't speak the language and I didn't speak enough at all to understand even the context of the conversation. Right. And probably at Tokyo too, when we were reporting at one point, everybody's in the airport and people just start running because there's all this concern that these nuclear reactors are leaking, you know, and you're just kind of like, I don't understand what's happening. I can't, I can't. Like, why are we running? <laughs> Can someone stop and tell me? When I was yeah, in Chile, that would be scary. Covering a, uh, I was covering an earthquake in Chile, and I remember my Spanish is more like Spanglish. And people were just looting. And I remember asking a guy, I said to him, why are you looting? You know, there was not that much damage. What? But I was like, why are you looting? And he said to me something. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said in Spanish, he said, if you ask me again, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, oh, okay. No oh. siento. Oh, yeah. Especially for someone who's type A. Like that, where you're yeah. just like, oh, this is a little more out of control than I like. Right. And, yep. and especially around language where you're just like, can't, you know, you take so much comfort in knowing it's like, oh, they're happy. Because yes. you are angry. The people yes. here, you know, and if you can't understand the context at all, it actually is very scary. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Language, especially if that's you, what you rely on, is so difficult because I feel that way even just going to another country where I don't speak well because I want to crack jokes the same way. And I'm like, I can't be sarcastic in French. <laughs> you know, like, right, right, right. So like adding on fear of for your life at the same time would be an out of control situation for sure. Uh, five, the habit or quality you think has most contributed to your success? I'm a really hard worker. Yeah. I mean, I, I think more than anything, just this idea that I will just put the time in and work really hard and, and I'm pretty stubborn. So I'll come back and, and try to figure it out. If someone tells me no, I'll have another meeting with them just to figure out why. Why the no? You know, you don't have to say yes. I'm just, and I'm not trying to be a pain. I just want to understand. You get so much good information that way. So I think I'm just, I'm, I just will work very hard to get what I want to get. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? to be a little um, physically more demanding of myself. One thing that has been really unfortunate as I turn 50 this past year, it'll be 51 in September, is that, you know, I was a pretty decent athlete when I was in high school and even in college. But, you know, you have kids and you have a job and you just you, you stop being able to do all those things that you wanted to be able to do. And then a couple of knee surgeries, and I got a rotator cuff injury. And I would just really like to get my body back to a place where I'm in really good shape. And I actually think that it's doable, that you can push yourself to all of these things so that, you know, when I was in high school, 
I was a decent athlete, but I, I wasn't physically amazing or anything. I think I was just like, hey, you know, I could run and I could do this stuff. And I think you can go back and recapture that by really working out hard and really eating well and really working on those things. That's what I'd like to be able to do in my next five years. You know, at age 55, be in better shape than I was yeah. at 25. Hey, that's goals right there. Uh, hopefully achievable goals. And finally, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? I think I'd like people to say that I was generous, that I was really um, engaged, and that I, I strive for excellence. You know, just high-quality, excellent work. Yeah. That's a lot of words, but, hey, <laughs> but you get my yeah. point. Get the point. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for making time for me. This was so fascinating, and I, and I love following pleasure. along with your Thanks work. for having me. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is on ESPNW.com. It is an oral history of A League of Their Own in honor of the 25th anniversary of the movie. If you only saw it as a kid, I actually really recommend seeing it again now that you're a bit older. Uh, I watched it as a kid and I loved it then, but it was on TV a couple months ago and I got home from something and watched the last 40 minutes and it struck me in really powerful ways that it, that it didn't affect me the same way when I was a kid. Um, still funny, definitely stands the test of time, but I think some of the larger issues at hand really affected me differently now that I'm older. So check out the movie again and read the oral history on ESPNW.com. Lots of very cool people interviewed, including Gina Davis, Megan Cavanaugh, who was um, Marla Hooch, Billy Bean, who is the MLB ambassador for inclusion, and a couple other uh, actors and and participants in the movie. Um, But it's so great to see the behind the scenes and hear more about how it was made. And I love this line from Billy Bean in the oral history. He said, this movie is no different than having young girls watch Venus and Serena Williams play tennis. If they see an image they can relate to, it makes them want to try something. We say that a lot around the ESPNW parts. If you can see it, you can be it. And that movie was certainly a great example of helping us with that. Thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.